1: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm a professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Christopher alstrom Vige. We'll be talking about his new book, Epistemic Paternalism, A Defense, which is newly published by Paul Grave MacMillan. Christopher alstrom Vig is... lecture in philosophy at the University of Kent. Many of our goals and aspirations depend upon our epistemic capabilities. Our attempts to do the right thing or to live a good life can be greatly hampered if we're unable to form true beliefs and resist false ones. Thus, we have good reason to seek to be epistemically healthy, as it were. But we know that as fallible creatures, we are prone to a wide variety of errors and pitfalls. So we should seek epistemic improvement. However, we also know that our reasoning is vulnerable to various dysfunctions that we find hard to detect in ourselves. And even when these are detected, we find that they're difficult to correct. So what should we do? In epistemic paternalism, Christopher alstrom makes the case that we cannot rely on ourselves for epistemic improvement, but must instead endorse a general policy of epistemic paternalism. Epistemic paternalism, he says, is the policy of interfering with an agent's inquiry for the epistemic good of the agent without the need of the agent's consent. That's a bold thesis, and this is an engaging and rigorously argued book. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Christopher alstrom Vige. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Good. How about you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us for our discussion of Christopher's new book, Epistemic Paternalism, A Defense. Uh, I highly recommend the book, um, both as a work in epistemology and as a work that it lies at the intersection of um, epistemology and social philosophy and political philosophy and ethics. Um, indeed, one of the things that is um, really uh, interesting about the book uh, is the way it brings uh, empirical considerations to bear on questions regarding our individual and collective epistemic goals uh, and our normative goals uh, as thinking... Creatures, both individually and collectively, uh, in general. Um, so uh, there's a lot to talk about uh, in this book. It's a, uh, a slim book with a lot of content. Um, but first, Christopher, um, let's uh, let me ask you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure.
0: So yeah, I was um, maybe I'll say a few words about how I came to do philosophy and the kind of philosophy I do in particular. So it was uh, somewhat uh, less than fully straightforward. Uh, route. I actually uh, I grew up in southern Sweden and I wanted nothing but to be a foreign correspondent of a Robert Fisk type to travel hmm. around the Middle East and report about conflicts and write interesting stories. So anyway, in Sweden, if you want to go to journalism school, you need the equivalent of one year's worth of university credit. And uh, during an open day, I happened to stumble upon a introductory session to philosophy and I fell in love. And um, Eventually, I ended up going to uh, grad school in the US. And uh, right around that time, I also had already become very interested in, um, epistemology, in epistemology. And the kind of epistemology in particular that I've come to be particularly committed to is one that interfaces with psychology. So in particular, I'm interested in the question how we can become better at reasoning in more accurate ways. And I think. It's interesting because that might seem kind of different from what maybe a lot of epistemologists today are working with. We have a lot of, you know, disguised mules and uh, brains and bats and so forth. But I think actually, if you look at the history of epistemology, what some of the major epistemologists were thinking about were questions having to do with intellectual improvement. So just think of things. So think of Descartes, for example. I mean, he a new one. We're interested in about how to improve our ways of reasoning look at look at John Locke similarly particularly in some of his um, some of his later work and uh, also Mill I mean if you look at Mill's work on mm-hmm. logic that's uh, that's what he's interested in interested in logic in the sense of a tool for helping us to think in better ways so that in a sense is also the kind of work I do of course one benefit of doing this today as opposed to one Descartes. or Locke or Mill were trying to do this, is that today we have a wealth of empirical information from psychology that provides us with really quite useful evidence regarding what kind of intellectual advice might be more relevant and helpful than others. So one thing that I've come to do in my work is to look at that kind of empirical research and try to kind of harvest it for epistemological implications. And um, so that that's largely kind of a, a naturalistic take on epistemology in the will, in the sense that you think that the, the kind of stuff that is happening in the sciences is relevant to the kind of stuff we do in philosophy. It doesn't replace it, but it's highly relevant. There needs to be this um, um, acknowledgement of what data and what field is relevant to the kind of uh, epistemological or general philosophical questions that you're interested in. And I, I tend to do this in the context of what today we tend to call after Alan Goldman social epistemology. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, you can, you can think about intellectual amelioration from different standpoints. One way you can think about it is the way Descartes thought about it, which is that intellectual amelioration is something you would engage in roughly while sitting by yourself in front of your fireplace. Or, which has become more uh, popular in recent years, you can think about, you can you can acknowledge the really very um, substantial epistemic debt we owe to others. We depend on others for the majority, the great majority of the things that we know. And you factor that into your epistemology and get social epistemology. So Alvin Goldman has this, I think, quite helpful term where he talks about systems-oriented social epistemology. And that's one kind of social epistemology where you would ask questions about, well, given that we depend on each other for knowledge and true belief and justifications and all these epistemically nice things, what kind of social arrangements and what kind of social institutions will be more or less conducive to spreading these epistemic goods, Mm -hmm. such as, for example, true belief or knowledge? So you can think about this in terms of, um, I mean, something you've worked on, you can think about this, for example, in the context of liberal democracy. So mm-hmm. is it the case that there is some something epistemically good about a liberal democracy? For example, might you be able to trace it to the way in which in liberal democracies we tend to value and protect such things as um, free speech, maybe free inquiry, these kinds of things? Are these epistemically good things? Is that a social arrangement that has beneficial epistemic consequences compared to relevant alternatives. You can ask similar questions about, say, different legal systems. You can think about the kind of stuff that goes on in in, in a court when, say, a judge is withholding certain kinds of information from the jury, as yes, this common practice in U.S. courts. Um, and typically, the kind of justification for that practice is that it's in the epistemic interest, if you will, of the jury. You're withholding the kind of information that you have good reason to believe will mislead them in some way. Not necessarily because it's irrelevant, uh, but because maybe it will be difficult for the jury to process the relevant evidence in the correct way. They might, for example, overestimate the probative value of certain kinds of evidence, say, pertaining to character, finding out past crimes, and these kinds.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So these these are all the kind of Things you would think about in in this particular kind of social epistemology, where you're interested in social systems in particular, and then of course if you go back to talked a moment ago, if you if you're interested in naturalized social epistemology in particular, then you would you would try to factor in relevant results from the empirical sciences, and maybe empirical psychology in particular when trying to evaluate these kinds of systems. So that's the mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing that I've been um, Come to do more and more about, and also the kind of thing that I that I try to do about some particular problems and in institutions in in my book.
1: Right. Let me pick up a little bit on that and 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 uh, try to uh, pull the focus out a little bit. But what, what I what what I'm keen to ask you about is. Um, well, maybe it's two questions at this point in light of uh, in light of what you've just said. So, uh, can you orient us, uh, uh, myself and and our re- uh, our listeners, um, to how you understand the the, the field of epistemology uh, broadly speaking now, and its and its broad contours is what I mean. Um, you know, I, I take it that um, to a lot of non epistemologists. Um, epistemology has a reputation maybe this is true about subfields within our discipline their reputations lag a decade or two behind the the facts on the ground Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that to a lot of um, people who uh, who work in philosophy but are not epistemologists uh, the picture of epistemology is still one of uh, you know fake barn facades and red balls at the ends of hallways and um, Gettier other kinds of Gettier style concerns where the issue really is a kind of conceptual analysis of S knows that P, Um, but I take it, and one of the things that you begin with your book uh, in in claiming is, you know, epistemology really isn't focused on that so much anymore, and even when it was focused on those kinds of issues, um, there was a, a broader concern driving the S, know that, the S knows that P style epistemology, um, which were distinctively normative concerns. So one question then is, can you tell us a little bit about how you see the field and particularly this, uh, what strikes me as a, a kind of um, robust return to the, you know, making more central and making more explicit the normative side of epistemology, mm, yeah. but also now just in light of um, uh, your your reference uh, a moment ago to naturalism in mm. epistemology, um, can you be a naturalized epistemologist and still take that normative, that strongly normative uh, stance uh, towards epistemic um, questions? Oh yeah, I think
0: most certainly. I think that's that's something that I'm. Um, I mean, that's in a sense what drives me to naturalized epistemology. I mean, I think if you if you think of the normative in terms of there are certain things that we want. There are certain things that, and some of those things that we want are actually worthy of being wanted. They are they are goods in some sense. And then we want to think about so these things are good. How can we how can we get them? How can we get more of them? And that's exactly why I'm interested in in naturalized epistemology because I think it's going to. And, and this this is something that Mill, for example, was was very very um, clear on that. It's going to be really hard to provide useful, helpful advice about how some particular anchor or how some particular social um, institution is going to be able to get their hands on these goods without factoring in all of the things that we know about how people tend to think, the mistakes we tend to make, what motivates us, and so on and so forth. And this is, of course, exactly what psychologists are studying they're studying the descriptive questions if you will pertaining to how we actually think and then if you're a naturalized epistemologist who's interested in these um, traditional questions of how can we become better at getting a hands on goods then you think that you can use that descriptive information that we get from psychology in order to bridge the gap by way of intellectual advice between the ways in which we tend to think and the ways in which we should think, which of course might be the kind of primary domain of uh, the philosopher. And that's of course the, the normative domain. Um, so I think I mean, maybe to speak to, um, I guess your other, um, the other aspect of your question relating to how um, this might not be the conception people have of epistemology so I think, like I said, I think there's a long historical tradition of doing these kinds of things, both in the the ameliorative aspect of it and also the naturalistic aspect of it. There's definitely been, I mean, if particularly if you look at the 20th century, there has been a lot of epistemologizing in terms of um very exact definitions evaluated with reference to intuitions that are elucidated with reference to sometimes quite far-fetched thought experiments. Now, Mm -hmm. there there are a couple of reasons you might engage in that kind of exercise. And I think one, one reason that you might do it is because you think that the truths you uncover in epistemology are some kind of a priori truths. And specifically, there are some kind of normative truths, let's say truths about knowledge or justification, and uh, you have some Neoplatonic view about these things being um, encoded in our concepts of, um, say, justification or knowledge, Um, and that's why you engage in this kind of um, hypothetical thought experiments, intuition probing type methodology. and that's something you can do. Um, and I, I don't particularly personally, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go, but that's certainly one way to go. A different way to go is to think roughly in the way that I talked about a moment ago to say that there are certain things that it seems that we that we want and that are plausibly considered goods. And then we're interested in how to get that. And then, of course, we want to come up with definitions of things that so we want to try to maybe specify some kind of uh, something resembling necessary and sufficient conditions, not because necessarily we think that captures some kind of essence of, say, knowledge or justification. But we think that by being exact, people will understand what we're talking about. And then what we do is we try to evaluate, OK, so now we have we are saying that justification is this or knowledge is this or whatever it may be. Um, and then we can turn to descriptive facts that we learn from psychology to evaluate okay, so there are certain principles that follow from maybe justification being this and knowledge being this, and then we can evaluate them. We can see, so is it a good idea, for example, that we should think of justification in terms of only what is introspectively accessible as the internalist about justification wants? Well, maybe not if we factor in the fact that most of the things that we believe, their grounds are not introspectively accessible to us. And it seems that we're, we're we either have to accept some kind of widespread form of skepticism, at least with respect to the justification of our beliefs, or we might say, no, actually, maybe we need to work with a more kind of inclusive notion of accessibility. So, so I think that, that, that those are kind of the two methodological stories They're I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately not um, um, extremely clear just because I think they're not two clear alternatives, but I think they're kind of two. Broad ways that you find when you talk to different epistemologists about these things. One being the more um, kind of um, I, I want to call it Platonic, but I mean that's not that's, that's not to kind of uh, prejudge the question of its philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but and, and the other one, more kind of empirically informed, both rely on intuitions, uh, both work with often exact definitions, and both might invoke hypothetical thought experiments, some of which are going to be far-fetched in order to kind of evaluate um, the relevant suggestions. But the Platonic camp, if you will, might maybe give the intuitions a more uh, primary and, and central role than you would on this other picture where you think that we have intuitions, but there are other considerations we bring to bear when we evaluate a theory, such as, for example, whether the principles or conceptions yielded by that theory um, capture things that, um, or rather, designate ways of getting the kind of things that we want, such as, if you're an epistemologist, for example, epistemic goods.
1: Right. Right. Well, great. Um, so let's uh, turn now to the to the the, the problematic. Uh, that drives the book, um, which is uh, a set of um, i think by this point sort of uh, widely known among philosophers uh, and others I should say uh, empirical results about um, a series of vulnerabilities that 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 we might call them uh, to which we are we are all subject um, that Uh, we might say, um, speaking now deliberately, kind of vaguely, uh, we're we're subject to a a series of vulnerabilities that seem to get in the way or obstruct what we otherwise would think of as uh, our reasonable epistemic aspirations for believing true things and rejecting false things and believing on the basis of good reasons and not on the basis of delusions, that kind of thing. Um, And so the book begins with a a very, very interesting chapter, uh, in some ways, very disconcerting chapter, <laughs> about all of the ways that um we not only uh are, are are sort of liable to certain kinds of uh errors but that we're liable to certain kinds of errors um in ways that um you know are very hard for us as individuals to detect mm. uh that is we're in the grip of one of these mistakes we, we 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 tend not to be able to notice or or diagnose ourselves as uh in the grip of of these kinds of uh, uh tendencies um so could you tell us a little bit about those those results and the and the and the problem that 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 drives you uh to defend this thesis uh of epistemic paternalism
0: yeah certainly yeah so i think you're right that some of the um empirical stuff that I discuss early on in the book is certainly well known, at least to philosophers and psychologists. Although I think, and that's one reason that I thought it was interesting to write this book, I I don't think the implications of the combinations of these things that mm-hmm. we know about ourselves is, has necessarily been fully appreciated. So the, if if we're to start with the general problem that, or, or actually a very particular problem that the book is dealing with, specifically it's a problem that arises when we start to think about some of the things we've been talking about and specifically how to bring about epistemic improvement. So the problem is this, so here is something that we know about ourselves and that you mentioned. So we know we're fallible creatures in the specific sense that we're subject to a variety of cognitive biases, which we can understand as something along the lines of systematic tendencies to reason in inaccurate ways. and. Of course, about this particular thing that we know about ourselves from psychology, that in itself might not be particularly worrisome insofar as um, a case could be made that it's very easy to either avoid or correct for these biases. But here's another thing that we also know about ourselves from psychology. We have a very stubborn tendency to overestimate our intellectual abilities and flowing from this um, overestimation, we also have a strong tendency to underestimate our susceptibility to bias. So while we're perfectly happy to accept that people in general are susceptible to these kinds of biases, each of us tends to have a tendency to think that we are an exception to the rules. So of course, as is often the case in psychology, if you think you're special, then you're just like everyone else. So if we were to put our finger on the problem here, is that while there are certainly steps that can be taken to reduce or correct for bias, and indeed a, lot, a large chunk of empirical psychologists been concerned with trying to identify things that we can do for that purpose, it's going to be the case because of this dual tendency for bias and overconfidence that each and every one of us will tend to think that we, as opposed to maybe everyone else, don't need to take those steps. So the upshot, of course, is that more or less everyone will tend to think that the relevant steps don't need taking as far as they're concerned. So right. that's, the, that's the problem that, I, that I'm trying to solve in, in my book. And the particular solution that I'm suggesting is that we accept a kind of epistemic paternalism. So epistemic paternalism, as, as I understand it, is roughly the view that we're sometimes justified in interfering with the inquiry of another for her own epistemic good, but without her consent. So, inquiry I take just to be kind of word for kind of epistemic business. We're trying to arrive at true beliefs or justify beliefs or whatever it is. And maybe science is a paradigmatic instance of inquiry. But of course, something we're involved in all the time as far as we're trying to figure out the correct answer to questions. And epistemic goods, that's what I think I might have hinted at already as as far as I understand it. And this is something I've been defending in other papers and I don't defend in the book there there is one epistemic good and that is true belief right so that right. that's kind of the framework
1: so yeah let me just stop you there and just ask you um, could you tell us a little bit about the specifics of the the kinds of biases that we know we're vulnerable to yeah um, uh, so just for those uh, who, who might be listening who aren't familiar with the heuristics and biases kinds of literature that I suspect a lot of our listeners might already know about let's just sort of get get a little specific about the, the, the kind of vulnerabilities that, that you're that, that you talk about in the book in particular
0: Sure. Certainly. So maybe one so here is one I think um bias that I think most of us or or a heuristic that I think most of us will will recognize in ourselves. So uh Daniel Tversky and common man uh, uh um oh sorry the other way, Daniel Kahneman and Almus Tversky mm-hmm. They describe what they call the um availability heuristic. So this is the heuristic that when we try to, say, for example, approximate or, or, or estimate a uh, frequency, what we do is we rely on, um, instead of going out and doing some kind of statistical analysis where we do some kind of statistical sampling and so on and so forth, what we do is we simply rely on the extent to which the relevant phenomena is um, easy to call to mind. So take, say that I ask you, So, Bob, how many people, what do you think is the frequency of divorce, right? So one thing you can do, of course, you can do some statistical sampling and so on and so forth, and then you come up with a very well-grounded answer. Now, what we tend to do, whether or not it's something that we acknowledge in the moment, is that we tend to simply um, judge it to be likely or or frequent to the extent that it's easy for us to come up with examples, right? So you might start to think of, say, um, you know, friends or, or or family or other people in your surrounding that have gotten divorced. And then you will try to estimate, again, this, this is going to happen unconsciously. You're going to be estimating the frequency of divorce with reference to how easy it is for you to come up with examples of people getting divorced, people not getting divorced, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem, of course, is that, so that's a heuristic, that's kind of a shortcut to estimating a, a frequency of something. Frequencies might reveal probabilities. Um, the problem, of course, is that in some cases, this might or might not be um, what, what you can, what you readily come to think of might not track the actual um, uh, frequency of the thing. So we can think of this in terms of, so say we come across in the news, there are all these stories about uh, politicians who are having affairs, right? Or, or or deviant in some other way, and then the question is asked. So you know how how common is it that politicians have affairs or do sexually deviant things or whatever it might be. Um, the way we will tend to answer that question, this is of course something that becomes very clear when you think about how um, how the news media works. We mm-hmm. try to we we tend to estimate it with reference to the extent to which we. The degree to which we can come up with these uh, vivid example that we examples that we might have encountered. Now, of course, in this context, that might not be a very reliable way to do it because, of course, a political scandal involving infidelity—that's juicy stuff. That's the kind of stuff that is going to tend to be covered. Meanwhile, a politician that has been faithful to his or her spouse for you know however long—that's not going to be something that gets covered in the news media. So here the availability of instances, so the cognitive availability of instances, the recalling instance of this kind is not going to track actual frequencies. So in that kind of instance we might talk about a heuristic constituting a bias. It will be something that will systematically lead us astray insofar as we are uh, moving in in epistemic situations where we don't have this correlation between availability and actual frequencies. So that's one kind of uh, bias. Now another example um, a very very prevalent heuristic is um, works in terms of anchoring. So say for example that I ask you to estimate the value so maybe I ask you so Bob how um, common is it that um, you know people die from from car accidents in the U.S. How often does that happen in a year? How many car accidents, maybe fatal car accidents, are there in a year in the U.S.? So imagine that before I ask you that question, I ask you a different question. I Maybe I show you a menu that has um, on the side certain prices for different, different dishes, right? Now it's going to turn out that depending on, say, whether I show you a menu that has you know, very very inexpensive prices. Or whether I show you a menu that has very expensive prices, so the numbers will differ. One will have large numbers, one will have smaller numbers. That number that you see before I ask you a completely independent question about the number of fatal car accidents in the US any given year, there will be an interesting correlation insofar as maybe I've shown you an inexpensive menu. Your estimation is going to be slightly lower than it might be if I've shown you a Um, menu involving very expensive items. So the number that you see before considering this completely independent question is going to anchor, as Mm -hmm. psychologists say, your later estimation, even, of course, in situations where if I were to point this out to you, you would say, surely that's not, surely I didn't do that. That's ridiculous. I know these are two separate things. Um, Nevertheless, it's it's a very robust finding that we work in these ways. And of course, this is insofar as we happen to be surrounded by, if you will, accurate anchors, then that's going to be a good thing to do, insofar as as in the example that I gave you uh, with the menu and then the number of accidents. In those cases, the relevant heuristic, this shortcut, is going to constitute a bias. It's going to systematically lead you astray. So these are some of the things that psychologists have been finding out about how our mind works and that you then can worry about if you like me, are interested in thinking about how we can become better at say arriving at true belief. These are the kind of things you do not want to do in contexts where they constitute bias so that's that's kind of the the answer to the why worry question and more about the content of the relevant biases
1: right and isn't there also um, along with this data um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot in the findings that suggests that um, uh, uh, even being made aware of the prevalence of these biases and maybe even being made aware of our own personal tendency to employ some of these heuristics, uh, um, in the non, uh, optimizing kinds of cases that uh, our efforts to, uh, recognize the, uh, these tendencies in ourselves and to counteract them
0: wind up being kind of counterproductive? Yes. No, that's, Absolutely right, or at the very least, ineffective. So, I mean, and this gets to, so now we talked a bit about the bias stuff. The other right. stuff I talked about, too, was the overconfidence stuff, and this is where the overconfidence stuff picks up. So, again, as I said, we, we don't tend to have a problem when it comes to realizing that people in general are biased, but when it comes to our own bias, we have, so Emily Pronin, a, a psychologist, talks about a bias blind spot. So we tend to... Right. Not be as um, happy to acknowledge that we have those biases ourselves, even if so an interesting case, so i have there there are these um there are these uh, calibration experiments that you can that you can uh, conduct for purposes of trying to find out the extent to which people's actual abilities say to answer certain questions correctly is calibrated with their conception of how good they are at answering those kinds of questions. You can find them online. It's really, really instructive. So I, I always give these to my students when they come just to, you know, because it's fun and it gets them thinking about these kind of issues with bias and overconfidence. But I think, and I, and I always tell them to, because I, not too long ago, I took this test myself because I was, I was curious um, and you can get from zero to 10 correct answers. And um, if you're perfectly calibrated, you will, you will, it will pretty much be, if I remember correctly, it was pretty much be mathematically impossible to get anything below six, right? And more or less everyone is going to cluster around nine or 10. That's just how it's going to work out if you're mathematically, if you're calibrated. Now, I took this test and I scored a five, right? So knowing, I mean, having, having for years immersed myself in this literature on bias and on overconfidence. But, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily do anything for you. So there, there are things you can do. There are some, some talk about so it's, it's called um, enhanced calibration feedback. So there there are ways to fit a person down for an extended period of time and to walk them through the ways in which they're not calibrated That will have some, that will put a dent in, in their overconfidence, at least for a little while. But it's an extremely stubborn tendency and you have to work very hard to remove it, which, and, and that's, that's very much the, in a sense, that is part of the motivation for the kind of solution that I suggest in, in my book, which is to say, let's not try to reduce, um, um, our overconfidence, just because it's going to be so hard to do. It's going to be a very, very time-consuming and costly process mm-hmm. of trying to do that. It's just so robust. Instead, let's try to, so some, some psychologists talk about this in terms of, instead of trying to kind of have us correct for bias or bind ourselves in a way that will prevent us from, from becoming biased, we think about it largely in terms of exposure control, right? So, right. As soon as you become biased, and it's something that happens a lot of the time, it's going to be, first of all, extremely hard to motivate the person to do anything about it. You're not necessarily going to acknowledge it because of overconfidence and so on and so forth. Even if you do become motivated to do it, it's going to be extremely hard to get to correct in the exact way that you need. I mean, you want to, you want to correct when and only when you are in fact biased, how do you figure out whether you're in fact biased. You want to correct to and only the extent needed to compensate for the relevant bias. You don't want to correct too much, and you don't want to correct too little. So these, these are very hard things to do, and that's what's led many psychologists to instead talk about exposure control. So we want to try, for example, withhold information for people that we do have good reason to think will bias them. And of course, if we withhold them, and specifically if we don't put the onus when it comes to improvement on the individual subject if we put that on some by way of some kind of external constraint we don't have to worry about them being overconfident because it's not their call whether or not to do anything about bias that's a call that's made by whoever is externally imposing the relevant constraints for example a constraint on information so that's so that's that's one example of the kind of constraint that i refer to in the book as epistemically paternalistic. So the external part of it is motivated exactly by this tendency for overconfidence, it being so hard to avoid overconfidence, to do something about overconfidence. And also more than that, it being very hard to, when there is bias, to correct for it, that we think about exposure for example in terms of not having people access the relevant information in the first place. And we do that, that constitutes a kind of interference. We're preventing people from conducting inquiry in whatever way they see fit. And we don't necessarily consult them in so doing, again, because they might not be motivated to do anything about it. So what's the point of consulting? And then finally, we do it for their own epistemic good. So that's kind of the epistemic paternalistic aspect of it, that there is, there's interference with someone for their own epistemic good, for their own ability to form true belief, without consulting them about it. So that's the right. of it.
1: Right so that, uh, then the book is um, is driven by uh, a recurring trio of um, uh, cases of epistemic paternalism uh, and um, the thesis of the book is um, in some ways a modest thesis for a, a, a what looks to me like a pretty robust conclusion but the thesis is uh, there's at least one and you wind up saying well there are at least three uh, (laughs) cases of defensible um, epistemically paternalistic uh, practice um, and so and and these cases keep coming up so there's the uh the, the what we might call the jury case yeah. and then uh randomization uh in in um inquiry and uh the use of prediction models uh uh in certain kinds of uh um uh, uh, inquiry uh can you tell us about those three cases these are cases where i take it that the the argument of the book is here are three cases where you know, this is obviously um, epistemic paternalism, right? We are withholding or we're d- interfering with somebody's inquiry for the sake of their own epistemic good, regardless of whether they consent or whatever they, you know, w- regardless of their consent. Um, uh, so tell us about these three cases and then we'll we'll, we'll talk about uh, how, how you make the, the, the move to justify uh, those practices.
0: Yeah, good. So yeah, so the first case, so you call it a jury case. So this is one we've touched upon already. So this is the the practice on the part of um, uh, of uh, judges in the U.S. of withholding certain kinds of information from the jury, and specifically information relating to character, um, moral character of past crimes, and so forth. And, um, and the idea here, and this is interesting, I mean, you see this in the relevant court decision, the, the motivation is, in many cases, straightforwardly epistemic. The idea is that, sure, you know, if, if this person committed a crime in the past... There might actually be some evidence for the person having committed this crime. But the fear is that juries will, and there's experimental evidence to back this up, that they will overestimate the probative value of the relevant um, evidence. And this is, like I said, this is, this is backed up in empirical studies. So in particular, negative character evidence is something we we. Give very great weight to when we try to figure out whether or not someone has uh, committed a certain crime that they might be on trial for. So that's, that's the first case I consider. And I argue that a kind of, whether or not it's the kind that is now in place, a kind of uh, evidence control, as Alvin Goldman has called it, of this sort will most likely be justified beyond being an instance of epistemic paternalism. Now, the second case I consider, as you also mentioned, is, involves um, experimental randomizations in the sciences, and maybe specifically in, in some of the uh, medical sciences when you run clinical trials. So while the jury case is an instance of you interfering by withholding certain information, so that's kind of an external constraint on information access, when we move on to the case of experimental randomization, it's not a matter of withholding information. It's a matter of putting constraints on how to collect information and specifically only collect information through randomization. Right. So this is, of course, the epistemic motivation here is that we tend to uh, we tend to confuse correlations with causation for purpose. of what we want to do then is because we want to have controls to protect us. Protect our conclusions from confounders, but of course it might be hard to know what the controls are. So what we do is we randomize. So that's that that would be a way to kind of control for all possible. Um, uh, confounders just because we have we have randomization. So then any difference that we'll see will be because of the the uh, treatment that we've imposed on one group, but not the other. So, um, and this is also, I said this is a way of interfering with someone's inquiry, specifically with their with their ability to collect information in whatever way they see fit. We do it for their epistemic goods to protect them from making this kind of mistake relating to correlation causation. And we do so without necessarily consulting them. We're not asking scientists to do this, uh, funding bodies and the FDA, when it comes to approving eventually. I'm not asking people that they're requiring that this be done. Um, so this is this is another case of epistemic maternalism that I argue is, is justified. And then finally a case we haven't discussed, which is that um the use of prediction models in a wide variety of areas, but I focus specifically on the use in clinical um prognosis and diagnosis. So the idea is here, and there's there's I think about sixty years worth of data on this now pointing more or less um universally in one direction. So if you are a clinician, you go, you see a patient, you're supposed to make a diagnosis or prognosis. You go in, you will read certain diagnostic cues, and then you will, by way of what is often referred to as clinical intuition, you will kind of take those cues by way of some intellectual processing, and then spit out the relevant diagnosis and prognosis. So that's one way of do of doing um, clinical work. Now, another way to do it, which has proved to be radically more reliable is to take large amounts of patient data, run a regression analysis in order to find what is correlated with what, take the output of such a regression analysis, and simply construct a simple mathematical uh, formula where you will say, okay, so here's what we're trying to predict, here's some condition we're trying to predict, Um, here are the often surprisingly small number of cues you need to look at, and here is how how much they weigh when you're supposed to add them together and say, you know, if the numbers come up above one number, it's one thing and it's below and so forth. Or we can have a more gra- fine grained, of course. So turns out, and this is not very popular among clinicians, of course, because it makes their job far less fun. But if you give these kind of models to clinicians and say, look, go in there and only look at these, say two or three cues, put them into this model and then report the results. That the model tells you to report. Turns out, clinicians that do that, even extremely um, well-trained clinicians with tons of experience, they're going to be clearly outperformed by these kinds of models, right? So, right. I mean, you, you can you might think that the kind of ameliorative upshot of this is straightforward: use the models, right? <laughs> of course, here there's a straightforward kind of moral imperative relating to we should be using the, the best models for purposes of doing diagnosis and prognosis. But here is, and, and here there is specific empirical evidence to suggest that the reason, or at least one important reason is why clinicians and a wide number of other people don't rely on these kinds of prediction models is because they are of the opinion that they don't need to, right? So you get the same problem that we start start out the book with, which is that, you know, you will, each and every one will tend to think that they don't need to do it, so no one will use these models, with the result that we do far worse than we could be doing epistemically by relying on these prediction models. So here, the paternalistic interference would consist, consist in requiring, so two things, first requiring that the clinicians collect and only collect certain kinds of information, Right? So for whatever information is needed to to plug in the numbers in these specific cues. And then secondly, that they um, that they base their diagnosis or prognosis on and only on the output of the relevant models, right? So not a very exciting job necessarily, but makes for very high reliability. And we have reason to think that the reason this is not happening and the reason that it makes good sense to mandate that this happens is exactly because clinicians will overestimate their ability to um, do clinical work without relying on these kinds of highly reliable prediction models. So these are the three cases that I work with throughout the book, and I'm arguing that not only is each case an instance of paternalism, uh, specific epistemic paternalism, so we have an interference with someone's inquiry, be it by their access to information or how they collect information or what information they collect, and finally, how they process it um, and we do we interfere specifically for their epistemic good for purposes of making them more reliable roughly speaking and finally we don't uh, necessarily consult them uh, for because if we did they would they would not want to do it that's why we're mandating it uh, mm-hmm. so that's those are the three cases that I work with and I argue that they are more than that justified
1: right right um so um one very quick thing and then and then i want to um a- ask about um th- this particular kind of paternalism in relation to um more familiar varieties of of paternalism um but um but part of the book is is also making the argument, I take it particularly with respect to the prediction models case, that not only should there be mandates um, uh, regarding um, the kind of data that's collected and how it's processed, but also how it's reported or disseminated. Yeah, yeah. By the researchers that you know a mandate is also that, and when you talk you know uh, to media outlets or when you report your findings, report what the model says <laughs> rather than what you might think yeah. um, that seems uh uh, that seems an important aspect yeah, uh, yeah. to get a flavor of the paternalistic yeah. um, force of, of of what you're up to. So, to, to, you know, confirm that. Tell us a yeah. little bit about about that aspect. You, yeah. you
0: are you are correct, Bob. That is an aspect of the case. And the reason I talk about that. So the reason I do say that there needs there should be a requirement to report is to get around a particular problem that otherwise mm-hmm. um, will face my case for paternalism so you can think about it this so so take take the uh, prediction models so what we can be doing is we can mandate we can tell clinicians you know use this model and then um report the output of course so this can all happen um they can comply with what we've told them to do without necessarily believing the output right because they think this is this is all this is all ridiculous that day after years of training should have to do this. So they might they might refuse to believe. And of course, we can mandate people to do things, but we can't mandate people to believe things because beliefs simply don't hook up to our voluntary responses in the relevant way. Right. So so I call this the problem of doxastic disconnect. And why is it a problem? Well, because remember, I said the point of epistemic paternalistic interference is to make us epistemically better off. That's the motivation. Right now. In epistemology, typically, we understand epistemic um, improvement and goodness and so forth in doxastic terms. And specifically, of course, I've talked in terms of true belief and false belief, true being good and false being bad. Right. So, of course, here in in cases of doxastic disconnect, we have successful compliance with the kind of requirements we've put into place without an epistemic improvement, exactly because the relevant people don't believe the output. This doesn't happen when we have simple constraints on information access, because, of course, there we just want we don't want people to access that information. If we successfully withhold that information, there won't be that won't have any duxastic effect on on their um, on them. For that reason, we don't get a disconnect in those kind of cases. But we do in the kind of cases, for example, involving the prediction model. So what I say, OK, so this is a potential problem, because now it sounds like, well, can we be justified then if if we not even Full successful compliance would necessarily make for an epistemic improvement if people refuse to believe. That's indeed maybe they will do on the grounds of overconfidence. So what I see here is that interestingly, if you also have people report consistently the outputs, over time they will come to believe those outputs. And why is that? Well, the reason is it has to do with cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is this psychological phenomenon studied. To the effect that roughly, cognitive dissonance arises when people say things or do things that they don't believe or don't think should be done. Right. So there's kind of there's some kind of dissonance between how we think of ourselves and what we see ourselves doing or saying. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's uncomfortable. Right. That's that's a state people don't like to be in. So they are motivated to get out of it. And it turns out the way people typically get out of it, of course, if you you have a clinician who has already reported consistently the outputs of this. They can't change that fact. That's in the past, right? What can they change? Well, they can change their belief, right? So the dissonance arises because we ask ourselves in a sense, well, why did I say that when I don't believe it? And then dissonance is resolved when over time we change our belief and in effect answer that question by saying, well, maybe I do believe it then, right? So the idea is to kind of, to kind of uh, exploit this tendency on our part, for cognitive dissonance in these cases, by way of requiring that they not only do these things, but also report the outputs. And over time, we can thereby, on on the grounds of cognitive dissonance, the way that works, we will see um, the beliefs falling in line with the reported output so it all sounds very sinister but that's the idea. it's kind of a, a
1: a version of some of the the thought behind the pascal wager argument right? yeah. <laughs> yeah you get you know you get on your knees on sunday and you pray and do all that and yeah. then eventually you'll come to have the beliefs that would lead you to do those things um do i pray all the time maybe i do believe
0: in <laughs> yeah no, that's exactly it yeah
1: uh right, um, yeah. <laughs> excellent so um th- th- perfect, so let me now ask so we've got a sense of what epistemic paternalism is we've got uh some uh a couple of uh uh prima facie justified maybe more than just prima facie justified cases where it seems very um uh natural to say well yes they should be using prediction models and the experiment should be randomized and the jury shouldn't uh, have access to um you know certain kinds of information about people who are on trial um so it looks like we've got some uh you've got some traction um so some pushback i guess will come from uh Those who are concerned about um, the uh, implications of epistemically paternalistic um, uh, processes uh, and practices of the kinds uh, that, that of the three kinds we've been discussing, uh, the relation of those practices to um, uh, strongly held anti paternalistic. Uh, uh, tendencies when we're thinking about, uh, moral cases that implicate not people's, uh, belief forming tendencies so much as their individual autonomy uh so uh you you have a chapter about whether epistemic paternalism is somehow um contravenes our interest in, in moral autonomy for individuals uh the answer there is no it does not um can you can you tell us how that argument runs
0: yeah certainly and i think i think this is so arguments in terms of autonomy would be one of the most interesting because most devastating uh, objection to this kind of autonomy. So what I do in the book, um, I survey um, a number of different notions of autonomy, both personal and both epistemic, as as you mentioned. And then I argue that for each of the relevant notions, it either fails to designate something that we have reason to value, uh, it's not really something that should be respected, it's not clear that it should be respected, or it's, in the great majority of cases, perfectly compatible with epistemically paternalistic intervention. So, for example, of course, Joel Feinberg, one of the, one of the most um, prominent anti-paternalists. So, Feinberg thinks that paternalism is objectionable because of the reasons for interfering, so specifically on account of the appeal to the good of the self. So such reasons, according to Feinberg, are morally illegitimate by their very nature. So it's a very, very strong claim. But when, what I argue in the book, so about Feinberg in particular, uh, I think a very interesting position. So when we start to look at the notion of autonomy that's supposed to generate that verdict for Feinberg, it doesn't, right? It doesn't. We don't get this um, illegitimate by its very nature and the reason is that what feinberg ends up finding objectionable are really not so much the reasons but a certain kind of practice and specifically kind of paternalistic practice that is motivated solely with reference to the interests of the person interfered with and that's simply not how epistemically paternalistic practices are to be motivated and and we kind of alluded to this talk so let's kind of spell it out a little bit and think specifically about um the, the jury case, right? So we constrain juries from accessing some kind of information for their own epistemic goods, for the reasons that we talked about. But of course, and this is something that the listener might have thought at this point, we don't constrain them solely for their epistemic good, right? So the, the reason we're interested in their epistemic good, and, and maybe in their reliability in particular, is because we want them to get the question of guilt right, right? That's their job. And getting that question right is morally important, right? So we constrain them and specifically their access to information, both with reference to their epistemic good and with the welfare of the defendant, which would pertain to some kind of moral good, right? So, so, so this kind of practice simply is not of the kind that Feinberg would find objectionable. And I say similar things about other notions of autonomy. But I think one thing that, if I may, one thing that's interesting about, and I think also might be taken to raise an objection. that's exactly that epistemic paternalism potentially has this kind of dual nature where it's, there's part, part epistemic and part moral and it might raise questions about, wait a minute, is this, really, is this really epistemic paternalism? Is it even paternalism? So think about it this way. So I think, and this is one of the, I think one of the most interesting objections in the, in, in the book, because I think it's, it, it would, be, would be really bad if it turned out to be true, but I don't think it does. <laughs> so, so, so think about this case again. So someone might say, now, well, wait a minute. What you're saying just shows that you're not a paternalist at all. And why is that? Well, because the ultimate reason for interference is the welfare of someone else than those that are interfered with. So that's not paternalism, right? Because in paternalism you need to have the benefit needs to accrue at the very least to those that are interfered with. It might be to other people too, but at the very least it can't be too separate the people that are being interfered with and the people that are benefit can be completely separate, right? That's mm-hmm. not paternalism. Right? So and I think like I said, I think this is ultimately unsuccessful. Objection, But it, it gets to a really important twofold qualification, I think. So one is that epistemic paternalism is a mixed, mixed form of paternalism, right? So some people we're striving to make better off are not in the set of those interfered with. And so is this still paternalism? Well, I think, so David Archard has a, a really interesting paper where he argues that, yes, it can still be paternalism. So he has this case involving a wife who hides the alcohol from her husband because it would be better for him not to drink. But she also acknowledges that it would be better for the family, right? Still, it seems she's acting paternalistic, even if the set of people benefiting is wider than the set of people interfered with. And second, so you might think the epistemic case is slightly different. So Because in the epistemic case, the goods involved when it comes to those interfered with, and those not interfered with, might be a different kind. So, in, in Notari's example, we have two goods operating in parallel, if you will. So, we have the good of the husband, and then the good of the family. It might be the same kind of good, right? But in the case of epistemic paternalism, we typically have two goods ordered serially, right? So, we have one epistemic good being an instrument to another kind of good, maybe a good relating to welfare, right? <laughs> so, those are two kind of important qualifications. but the person that is objecting on these grounds against this being paternalism might still not be convinced. So they might say, well, you know, the real reason for interference remains a concern for something non epistemic so welfare, say. But I don't, think that, I don't think that's right. So consider the following case. So imagine, so let's just try to imagine, that the government withholds a lot of information from us on the grounds of national security. Right. So imagine, moreover, that this is in some way, epistemically beneficial to us. So maybe the information that is being withheld is very complex, and if it were to be widely disseminated, we would just get it wrong, and we would form a bunch of um, mistaken beliefs about all kinds of different things. So there, there's an epistemic uh, benefit to withholding it. But of course, that's not why the government is withholding this information. So us not being misinformed in this way is a good, but in this context, it's, it would best be described as an incidental good. So it's kind of a... It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that just comes from, by accident, the ultimate motivation, which is, in this case, is national security, right? So, an, an incidental good. So, good, but incidental, right? But compare this, and I think in that kind of case, it would be right to say, well, you're not really interfering because of the epistemic benefit. And I think that would be right. If you ask government, why are you doing this? They wouldn't cite the epistemic good, they would cite national security. But I don't think, and this is important, I don't think the epistemic case works like that. It is unlike. This secrecy case. So think about, for example, when mandating that clinical researchers use experimental randomization. So part of the reason we do that is to promote their epistemic goods. So that's not the ultimate reason, but it's also not an incidental reason, right? So it's, it's not a positive side effect of the interference. It's, it's part of the very reason we interfere, right? If we ask the why you're interfering, that reason would be cited, right? And it's an instrumental reason, it seems to me. But On that ground, it doesn't seem to constitute less than a real reason in the way that an incidental reason might. So the kind of thing, it it qualifies as the kind of thing that serves to answer questions like, well, why did you do that? Well, a reference will be made to the epistemic good in addition to any non-epistemic good pertaining to, say, welfare, whatever it may, in the way that incidental reasons might not. So that's why I think that the practices that I'm concerned with here are are properly called epistemically paternalist, despite there potentially being several kinds of goods and consequently several kinds of reasons involved and potentially related in this kind of instrumental fashion that I just outlined. So, Mm -hmm. and I think we might even be able to say something stronger. So think about it this way. So it's not just that we may refer to the epistemic good of the researcher's when motivating the relevant interference that we just talked about. It might be that we have to. So insofar as, for example, clinical researchers are the only ones competent to settle the relevant clinical questions, and that that seems possible. You and I can't do it. We have to leave that to clinical researchers. They are the ones trained to. And as as that's the case, there's simply no way to promote, say, the welfare of consumers, if we think of this in the context of, say, an FDA requirement for randomization. There's no way to promote the welfare of consumers without promoting the epistemic good of the researcher. So in the book, I talk about this with reference to the epistemic good or reasons being practically necessary. Right. So,
1: well, let me ask, though, um, and uh, 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 you've been very generous with your time. So uh, let me just ask one sort of uh, uh, broad question about about the book. Um, how broad a proposal is this? and and, and Let me sort of fill in uh, a bit of detail there. Um, So the cases uh, that look um, more than merely prima facie justified cases of uh, epistemic paternalism um, all seem to be cases in which the epistemic agents under consideration are understood under the description of a certain role they have, juror, clinician, researcher, Um, and none of the cases are cases of just um, an individual epistemic agent who might be just walking down the street. Uh, uh, And uh, So I'm wondering, um, what kind of implication do you see, if you do, uh, for um, the justifiability of epistemically paternalistic practices for individuals understood independently of any Role they might be in, and I think it's important that in, in the 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 juror, the randomization, and the um, uh, prediction model cases, the roles are always other affecting roles, right? Yeah. That is, that yeah. part of what they're doing is they're doing things that are going to affect for uh, you know for good or bad um, other people. Um, what kind of implications, if you see any, would you see? Is there are there justified cases of epistemic paternalism uh, for epistemic agents taken? As such, rather than as taken as people in social roles where they're positioned to impact the lives of others.
0: That, that is a good question. I think I'm inclined to say no, um, but then I'm also wondering: Are there any such agents? Uh, so I think about <laughs> it. I mean, if you think about so, I mean, I'm interested in. Um, I'm interested in how to. This sounds sounds very. Uh, pretentious. But but insofar as you're interested in emulative in epistemology, you're interested in helping innocent actual people um, form mm-hmm. true belief. And of course the underlying reason that you think that is worthwhile is because and this is something that we have, we have touched upon several times already, is because in many situations you the, we we owe some there is some moral reason to get it right. Okay? So, so you, you frame it in terms of uh, different social roles, and I think that's right. I think these – when we talk about jurors and we talk about uh, clinical researchers and then clinicians, these are roles that are paradigmatically such that they that you owe certain moral uh, duties of, of, of um, um, say – good inquiry or something to others just because there are going to be implications for others and potentially very significant implications for others. Um, so I think so I think rather than the role stuff doing the work, it's really this 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 duty that we would have this moral duty we would have towards others of, of, of getting things right because getting things wrong might be very costly on moral grounds. That's what's doing the work and I guess I don't so, – so I've given you three cases and, and you want more, right? And that's fine. So, and, and I think this is something that is going to crop up in many other places. I mean I think one one that I discussed briefly in the book but that maybe um, – uh, that we haven't really talked about here. It might be that this will be the case also in educational settings, right, that we have certain – and as, say, as, as teachers or as professors, whoever may be, we might have a certain moral duty to get certain kind of decisions right just because the decisions that we make and, you know, how we go about um, grading papers or writing recommendations or admitting people to programs and so on and so forth, that might have very uh, significant implications for people, for their well-being. And it's important that we get those things right. Um, and then of course, I mean, we shouldn't forget some of the stuff I already discussed in the books so that take the prediction models that we talked about clinical prediction models, of course, they are prediction models in a wide variety of situations um, outside of the clinical domain pertaining to stuff like you know um, take the prison system, so how do you predict whether someone is going to uh, commit another crime if they get released, and uh, how do you how do you predict who is going to be? Um, performing some particular crime on the basis of history and so on and so forth. So these are also cases where, of course, we have people trying to kind of peer into the soul of others and think that they are seeing something that is pervaded as opposed to, say, relying on far more, uh, reliable prediction models. So, so the data is certainly there for a wider set of cases than the three that I discuss, And I think, too, the kind of moral imperative that is underlying the kind of, well, why is it important to get these matters right, is going to um, be present in other situations as well. So I think uh, you're right, and I talk about this, terms in the book, I mean, in a sense, I just need one case for right. everything of paternalism to come out true as I define it. You know, sometimes we're justified in, I just need one case. But of course, ideally, you want several cases, and I, and I give you three. Uh, to, to kind of suggest that there is some broad applicability. And I think you, it's perfectly fair to push me on the point. Well, are there more than three? And the, the brief answer is yes, I think there are. And for these reasons, I think that what makes these cases work, both on empirical grounds and also on, on moral grounds, that is not unique to these three cases. And um, uh, so that's what it does. That, does that answer the question at all? or?
1: No, that, that, that's fine. I we, we next time I, uh, I I see you, I've I've, I've got one or two uh, um, particular kinds of cases in mind. So, you know, one thing that one might worry yeah. about is the the potential for this account to overproduce. Uh, okay, yeah, justified yeah. cases. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what about people who believe in psychics? They've got lots yeah. of false beliefs. Yeah. Um, Maybe they're not false beliefs that are in any particular yeah. way harmful uh, to others. Yeah. maybe they're harmful in their own doxastic lives. Yeah. They make you know worse decisions. Yeah. Um, uh you know so the you know, the story with paternalistic proposals in general is always you know where do you s- where, where, you know th- the worry is the overproduction production of justified uh, interferences yeah. um but th- you know you've been very generous with your time so th- there's certainly a lot more uh, uh, to think about
0: yeah. uh I think, I look- one point yeah, on about yeah because oh, sure. running- yeah. so, I think I think that that is a, a valid worry about paternalism including at this theme of paternalism so something we haven't really talked about so one thing one thing that i do talk about in the book is so one condition on justified epistemic paternalism is the what i call the alignment condition right so the alignment condition requires that any epistemic reasons that we might have for uh, making people better off and as you suggest we might have those kinds of epistemic reasons all over the place um, mm-hmm. but those reasons have to be aligned with our other reasons and maybe paradigmatically with our moral reasons and there might be Many areas in which we are simply going to have strong moral reasons not to interfere, even given the prospects of an epidemic benefit, maybe because we might have more broad worries about, say, uh, overreach by the relevant department that is supposed to be doing the interfering. So that might I mean, it's a very, very million thought in the sense that we don't we don't want to give too much power to any given institution, including institutions that might have ever so good intentions from an epistemic point of view. And that might be the kind of thing that will prevent it from from overgenerating. That said, I don't think, I don't mean it to come out as an uncontroversial thesis. So, I mean, think about a very topical case. So think about climate change, for example. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people think uh, completely ridiculous things, uh, false things about climate change. That is really bad, right? And it might be that in these kinds of potentially catastrophic situations, we might actually have moral reasons for epistemic intervention. I don't have any concrete suggestions for exactly what those interventions would look like, but that might be a kind of case where you might, you know, you talk about psychics and you might think, well, that's, that's really harmless. There might be other cases that look kind of like the psychic case, but really aren't very harmless. And where we might actually not only have good epistemic reasons, to prevent people from being misinformed, but maybe also strong moral reasons, exactly because the stakes are so high, as they might be in climate change, for example. But that would, that would have to be another book.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, um, you've been very generous with your time. So uh, wh- wh- what's, what's
0: next for you? Yeah. So one thing I've been um, thinking about recently, so um, um, I've been thinking a lot recently about epistemic virtue and epistemic character. And uh, in a sense, I've been thinking about whether there might be in the context of epistemic uh, virtue and character there might be a nicer, maybe non paternalist way to solve the problem I set out to solve in this book. So forget everything I said so far, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but aside, the idea is supposed to be uh, this. So think about what people that are attempting to provide intellectual advice are doing. So they might be telling us, listen, don't do this, don't do that, and quote all kinds of different kind of biases or, or maybe reasoning strategies and so forth. So they're providing some form of request, right? So insofar as we're listening to them, we can be said to be complying with the request to be listened to. And then hopefully there will be some connection between listening and, and believing what one is being told and, and maybe the beliefs hopefully would have the relevant impact on how we act and form further beliefs and so forth. So, so then the question becomes, so how do we bring about compliance? Well, this, of course, is something that social psychologists have thought a lot about, and specifically maybe in legal context. So one question for social psychologists have been, so when do we comply with the law? And so one very particularly uh, interesting social psychologist here is Tom Tyler. So he suggested that when we consider, um, uh, when it comes to what kind of authorities we tend to comply with, we tend to comply with the ones, not the ones that are threatening us necessarily, not the ones that are providing sanctions, but the ones that are fair, And the relevant notion of fairness crucially involves a willingness on the part of the relevant authority to listen to us. So as I put it in one of my uh, papers is that people listen to people who listen, right? Mm -hmm. So and I think this can be and this is kind of the hypothesis I'm working on right now. I think this can be imported into the context of the person providing intellectual advice. And specifically, it might be that people will tend to listen and hopefully also believe people who themselves are willing to listen maybe specifically by providing a form for input so if you want if you're providing intellectual advice and you want people to take that on board one thing that you can do there might be other things you need to do that i talk about too but one important thing is for you to be prepared to listen so we can think of the relevant kind of procedural fairness that you would then be manifesting or or, or implementing insofar as you provide intellectual advice in this way as a form of virtue as a form of an epistemic virtue in the uh, in the million sense of of a disposition that will have that will be conducive to the good, and in this case, it would be something promoting the epistemic good of those on the receiving end of the advice. And indeed, we can also think of the receiver of the relevant advice as potentially instantiating a kind of virtue, potentially a virtue that is promoted by this kind of procedural fairness, and it would be the virtue of deference. So the kind of virtue that is manifested insofar as roughly we listen to people who know what they're talking about and thereby are making us better off uh, for listening to them. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about right now and that I think might be potentially providing an uh, alternative solution to the same problem. So, of course, two is better than one. So.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds great, Christopher. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us today on New Books in Philosophy. And uh, thanks for your time.
0: Thanks so much, Bob. This is great.
1: All right, take care. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Christopher Alstrom-Vish of the University of Kent. We were talking about his new book, Epistemic Paternalism, A Defense, newly published by Paul Grave Macmillan. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.